Today we continue our sermon series, The Search for What is True About Me and About You. Our Heavenly Father knows you. You heard that in my scripture reading of Psalm 139. He knows you and he loves you. And Chad has preached that in recent Sundays. And because God knows you and loves you, Chad and I both wanna point out how God believes that you are worth dying for, both in last week's sermon and from a different perspective today. In, um, in the beginning of, our, of this sermon here though, let's, let's just pause for a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Please join me and bow your heads. Great and mighty God, King, King of our hearts, King of our lives, I pray that you will indeed open our hearts, open our minds, our ears, our very beings to hear your word. And I thank you as your Holy Spirit moves among us right here, right now. I pray that each one of us in your holy word here will see Jesus. In his strong and powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. My friends, back in 1997, in 1997, we built our forever home in Pearland. Matthew was like three. Benjamin was just a baby. We didn't even dream of Elizabeth. And the land that would become Silver Lake subdivision was really just barren. No trees for as far as the eye could see, except, you know, over on the golf course. And there were three of us families building our homes, the, the very first homes on the whole neighborhood, the whole street. And we'd come over to the site often to check the progress and to remind the contractor to do it this way. Yeah, and um, we would celebrate together in the middle of that street, you know? We would lament together in the middle of that street. And one day we just made a covenant to pray for each other before our homes were ever even finished, before we ever even moved in and started doing life together. And as others would move onto the street, we would just bring them along into our family. And we've celebrated marriages and babies and promotions. And we've cried together over losses and heartbreaks and setbacks. So when the husband in one of these families, our friend Bruce, when they found out that Bruce had pancreatic cancer, well, there we were again, praying for one another in the middle of the street. And during all this time, without even knowing it, you all have been a terrific blessing to our friends, Bruce and Kathy. Um, their little church just didn't really have a way to do worship online during that COVID time. So they watched First Press. And when they couldn't really jeopardize Bruce's immunity of going to church for communion, they'd go to their pantry and they would have communion right along with you in the recorded worship services. And then more recently in taking his chemo treatments, Bruce takes his phone and he listens to the worship services and to the songs. You have been a terrific blessing to him. But the status is stage four now. And um, we're still praying boldly. On Friday morning, I grabbed one of those brown paper bags that I do for communion to go. We do that for our homebound folks so they can have communion when we go to see them if they can't come here. 
and Mike and Matthew grabbed some of the neighbors and we all sat on Bruce's uh, patio. It was the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the Episcopalians all together, just celebrating the feast like we're gonna do with God in heaven, like we're gonna do at this table in this service, like people are doing around the world on this World Communion Sunday. And there's nothing that we've done to somehow earn this celebration. Our worth is really in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And my goal for today is to help you see that you are worth dying for. Today we're gonna read part of a parable that Jesus told in the gospel according to Luke. It's in chapter 15. And for those of you who've heard this story before, you probably know it as the prodigal son. But my perspective on this to present to you is the father. In fact, I wanna present this to you under the title, The Running Father. The Running Father. He is filled with compassion. And his love models for us the love of our gracious and merciful God. So follow along in your Bibles or just sit in a posture of receipt and listen as I read this with your eyes closed, your heart open. And I'll read to you Luke 15, 11 through 24. In this chapter, Jesus is telling three parables focusing on the lost and the found. We're gonna come in on the third parable here, starting at verse 11. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the estate that is coming to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered together everything and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate in wasteful living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to do without. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And that man sent the younger son into the fields to feed pigs. And he longed to have his fill of the carob pods that the pigs were eating. And no one was giving him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here from hunger. I will go set out to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired laborers. So he set out and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. 
He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's more to this story. The running father continues to demonstrate his love for both of his sons. And we'll hear more about that later in another sermon in our series this fall. For today, we're looking at the first half of the story. Here, Jesus illustrates for us a man who has two sons. For this Jewish man in his day, in that society, having sons was tremendous. They would learn from you in their childhood and then they would take care of you in your old age. They would carry on your lineage. This man was richly blessed. He was also a man of means. He had some land and some wealth and he had compassion. When the younger son demands his share of the inheritance early, we have no record of the father being insulted or angry. This outlandish demand from the son to the father says, I wish you were dead already. The man does not respond by kicking out his younger son. He doesn't say, you're dead to me. And that would have been the father's right. At such a shameful demand that reduces his family, reduces his property, in that day, the father had every right to dismiss the younger son for this highly disrespectful behavior. Instead, he complies with the son's wishes. The father liquidates one third of his property and according to Jewish law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that's what was appropriate for the younger son. A third of his resources go to this younger son. And he allows the son to take it all and to leave for who knows where and who knows what. Jesus tells us in verse 13 that the son journeys to a very distant land and he lives a prodigal life. He wastes his wealth on things and habits that are not healthy for his mind, for his soul, for his body. Living recklessly, he spends everything. He's broke. And then Jesus explains to us that this distant country experiences a severe famine. In an area of our world that is already arid, if they do not receive some kind of rain before the harvest comes, then the people's sustenance is cut off by parching drought. So with no money and no home and no food, the younger son attaches himself to a landowner in this foreign country. After all that freedom to do whatever he wants, to abandon his father, to abandon his faith. The Greek wording here in verse 15 tells us that the younger son joins himself to a master. And that's not the worst of it. The absolute low in all of this is that a young man from a good Jewish family finds himself slopping pigs. 
There is probably no other animal as disgusting to Jewish sensitivities as the pig. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are plenty of other animals that are not kosher, animals that cannot be eaten due to their hooves or due to their cud, or the likelihood of bringing some serious digestive tract problems. Remember, they don't have antibiotics. There is no Pepto-Bismol. But beyond that, for the Jews, colloquially, the pig is the ultimate symbol of loathing. If a person were referred to as acting like a pig, he or she must have done something unusually abominable. And the younger son is at an absolute low of self-loathing. And pigs, (laughs) pigs, they'll eat just about anything. Like you could empty your fridge of all the spoiled food, everything that's like well beyond the sell-by date, and you can slop pigs with it. They'll eat anything. So in verse 16, when the younger brother is so destitute, he's so very hungry that in desperation, he considers eating the carob pods that he's feeding to the pigs. These, these are not yummy foods. These are, a carob is a fruit, but it's kind of like, um, like a vanilla bean. You know what I mean? It's brown and it's rough and it's leathery and it just really doesn't have any nutritional value except for fattening pigs. So if you were to look at verse 17 then, that's one of those Bible geek moments that your pastors tend to have. Um, So I'm gonna bring you with me on this exegetical adventure in verse 17. I've told you before that sometimes it just takes a whole lot of English words to tell you what the original intent was in the New Testament Greek. And for some odd reason, um, some of the translators choose to say in verse 17, but when he came to his senses, that is not what that means. Remember a minute ago, I just said that the younger son lived a prodigal life. He wastes his wealth on habits that are not good and healthy for our brains, for our souls, for our bodies. Living recklessly, shamelessly, loosely is not how we were originally created to be. Originally, God blessed humankind in Genesis. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over all the animals, every green plant and everything that has life. We were created to live in harmony with our Father God, with ourselves, with each other, and with nature. But because we are fallen creatures in a fallen world, we do not always do what we know is right. And to an extreme level, that's what the younger son has done. In his quest for freedom, for pleasure, he has lost himself. So the original intent of the language here, some translations got it right. It says, but when he came to himself. To come to oneself is a very expressive phrase. In his day, it was commonly applied to one acting out of character, even deranged under the influence of evil. And when he recovers, 
The Greek says he has come to himself, to a better, healthier mind and spirit. And so it is of every one of us sinners. Ecclesiastes 9 calls it the madness in our hearts. As sinners, we are estranged from God. We are led by influence from evil passions. We choose against our better judgment and make decisions that are not of a sound mind. This, this is where it would all end if it were not for God's plan of salvation. If God did not think that we were worth dying for, then there would be no hope God knew that we needed a savior. So when the younger son comes to himself, he once again knew his own heart. He realized that he could at least be a hired hand working for his father. His basic necessities of food, clothing, and shelter would be met daily. That's a whole lot better than where he is right now. He may feel like he's not worthy to be the younger son anymore, to represent the family. But he'll go and he'll apologize for his sin. And well, he wouldn't be part of the household anymore, but maybe his father just might keep him as an employee. So the younger son rose up and he began his journey from that distant country all the way back to his father's house. And this, at verse 20, this is where we see our running father. Verse 20 says that while the younger son was still away off, his father saw him. Oh, I know exactly what that means. As a mama, I know my children's shapes, outlines, demeanors, and walks. I know Elizabeth's determined walk. I know Benjamin's confident saunter. I know Matthew's posture of responsibility. I know my children and this father knows his son. This man has been scanning the horizon ever since the day that that boy left. Waiting, watching, hoping, praying that his wayward child would return. And finally, here is the day. He finally sees his son. He's filled with compassion for him. This father loves his son. He runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. We hear this, right? But we do not fully understand this bold action without some context. In the Middle East, in that culture, running was considered shameful. For an honorable man to hike up his robes and show his hairy legs and run, that was just embarrassing. Today, that would be like a dad running down the middle of the street in his boxers and all the neighbors sitting on the sidewalk drinking coffee and watching the spectacle go by. How embarrassing. It was a spectacle. A Jewish man would never prance around in public. But this father, this running father knows that his community customarily would have been filled with disgust for a scoundrel who so deeply disgraced his family. 
This father knows that if he doesn't get there first, somebody else will. Somebody else might try to beat his son, to send him away or to publicly humiliate him because he humiliated his family. This running father lavishly embraces his son, kisses his son, makes such a spectacle of unconditional love that no one can stop him. Not even his son with a plan for an apology. The items then that the father calls for, he tells his slave to get the robe, to get the ring, to get the sandals. These are all symbols of complete restoration. The younger son has rebelled, yes, and he has returned. And his father gives him outward symbols that convey his belonging, his worthiness. The robe is what men of means would wear to a festival, to a celebration. It's, it's colorful, it's long, it's flowing. It's definitely not what you would wear if you were working. The ring, oh my goodness, the ring is a symbol of authority. It conveys the younger son's place in the household after his father, after his older brother, and over everyone else. The sandals, the sandals represent his status. The hired hand that he was willing to be, the household slaves, they had no shoes. This fresh, clean appearance, it represents that all the guilt and all the shame have been taken away like dirty laundry. And instead, the younger son is clothed in festival apparel. He's ready for the feast, for the celebration, like we will have at the communion table. See this in your mind's eye. In your imagination, see the heart of God here. The heavenly father standing on his front porch with the light on, watching, waiting, hoping for a glimpse of the person who's rejected a relationship with God. God longs to have that with us. See the running father making his way toward the son, taking the shame of the community upon himself. And now in your mind's eye, see Jesus, the king of the world, going to his death, allowing Roman soldiers to throw him down and nail him on a heinous cross. And then lifted up, Jesus hangs there carrying our sin and dying, allowing his messiahship to be questioned. Oh, just the hatred of humankind and the wrath of God. Jesus took the shame and the pain that we deserved and gave us the ultimate once and for all sacrifice. This is salvation. Our Lord running toward humankind with arms outstretched to embrace us, to kiss us, and take the nails that were meant for our punishment. Our Lord knows you. Our Lord loves you. And our Lord believes that you are worth dying for. 
The Apostle Paul says this beautifully in Ephesians 2, and I believe it expresses the running father's love for his younger son and our heavenly father's love for us. Paul said, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin, obeying the devil, the commander of the power of the air. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. And all of us used to live this way. But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So why does Jesus share this story with us? I looked at lots of commentaries and I found one comment that was really touching, very authoritative. It's in your pew. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says that Jesus shared this parable to show people what God is like, to show us what we are like, so that we can know that however far we may run, however well we may hide, however lost we may be, it doesn't matter. Because as sons and daughters of the Most High God, we can never outrun our running father. We can never be so lost that God can't find us. He is the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God who loves us more than we can ever really imagine. And all he wants from us, the only thing he wants from us is our love in return. Because when we love, like when we truly love our heavenly father, everything else falls into place. We are compelled to love ourselves, to grasp that we really are worth dying for. And if that's true for me, then that's true for you. And if that's true for each one of us, then it's true for the person sitting next to you. And it's true for that person complaining behind you in the grocery store line. And it's true for that person that just cuts you off on Kingwood Drive. It's true for the person who's hurt you deeply. When we can actually begin to see what God is like, his character, his attributes, his steadfast, undying love for us, then we can begin to grasp how he sees us, how he loves us, how he cannot wait to have the feast with us in heaven. You know, every week at this church, I feel like I have this intimate front row seat to something that the Holy Spirit is doing at First Press. I see things like worship planning and the sermon and the songs all coming together by the Holy Spirit. And this week, the Holy Spirit glimpse comes from our children's ministry. On Wednesday night, our epic children had a memory verse that speaks to God's love for you. So as I bring this to a close, listen to Zephaniah 3, 17, remembering that God believes you are worth dying for. The eternal God is standing 
right here among you. And he is the champion who will rescue you. He will joyfully celebrate over you. He will rest in his love for you and he will sing joyfully because of you. Amen. Please pray with me. Almighty God, the King, God, the running Father, God, with a heart full of compassion, help us to see you. Help us to know you. Help us to love you. To know that in that relationship, you really do think the world of us. You really do think that we are worth dying for. Thank you for giving us the Savior you knew we desperately needed. Thank you for filling us with the Holy Spirit. Amen.